0: Well, this morning we are going to look at one of the most famous texts in the Bible. It's certainly not the first time we've done so, and I do apologise if some of what I've said uh, before you've heard, but I feel just particularly with a new pastor soon to come, I'd like to have another shot at this uh, at this text. I think it's the most difficult text in the Bible actually to, to preach on, and uh, uh, we do need God's help to... Uh, come to John chapter 3 and verse 16. It's a glorious statement, but it does need to be so carefully understood. Where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, we were not look, not not too long ago, we were looking at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then we have an explanatory word, that first word of verse 16, 4. Here is what lies behind that lifting up by Moses in the wilderness, of the brass snake, as, a, as a, a, a type of the lifting up of Christ on the cross. Here is the explanation for it, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We do need to keep firmly in mind that this verse is part of a discourse between Christ and the leading Pharisee, Nicodemus, who was one of the leading teachers, as Jesus says in this conversation, the master or the teacher of Israel. We need to understand that because we need to realize that the Lord Jesus here is arousing the conscience and the thinking and the mind of this man. He's getting him to th- break out, as it were, out, out of the straitjacket of wrong teaching that he has as a Pharisee. And so there are different points we can identify in this Uh, conversation where he is particularly probing into and digging into this man's thinking and showing him that there's more uh, to the kingdom of God than he thinks Um, for example uh, the very use of the word world would have been a challenge to Nicodemus because Nicodemus as a typical Pharisee would have seen That or would have believed, wrongly believed, that God created the world for the Jews. That's what rabbinic teaching had come to at that time. In fact, they had such a high view view of their own spirituality and righteousness uh, that they believed that um, it was almost a favor uh, to God that the Jews were there. And the rest of the world, well, they were beyond the pale. And yet here is Jesus speaking about the world, God loving the world, sending his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Uh, So that was a challenge straight away. Last time, as we looked at verses 14 and 15, we saw that this too would have been a challenge to Nicodemus because Jesus started talking about Moses. And he was getting into... Nicodemus' space there because that was the Pharisees' area of expertise or so they thought. You know, we are in Moses' seat. We understand Moses. What are you telling us what Moses thinks? But Jesus was doing that. And then we've seen even the thought of the snake being lifted up. Although this was there in the writings of Moses, clearly it wasn't something that the Pharisees had dwelt on very much, the thought that it should have been a snake of all creatures, a brass snake, that had been modelled as an image for the Israelites dying of snakebite to look at. And this speaks of Satan, it speaks of sin, it speaks of ugliness, it speaks of guilt. And of course, what Jesus is doing here is showing the enormity of the cross, that here is the Son of Man, the Son of God, but he's going to be lifted up on a cross. Although he is the king, although he is the ruling Son of David, there's another side in the Old Testament Scriptures which the Pharisees didn't dwell on, which was the suffering servant. The thought that the Messiah would come and suffer. And in fact, in chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah there is a strong expression of that side of Messiah's ministry, including this, that his visage, his face, was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so here is Jesus referring to the lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross. And so these are kind of shock tactics To make Nicodemus think. And we must understand that God uses shock tactics. I believe the pandemic is one of his shock tactics. To make a lost world, a fallen world think. That we're not just here to enjoy ourselves. And to uh, just put number one self at the middle. And that's the end of life. But we are in this world to glorify God. And things are not right. There is this matter of sin. And so we have these disasters and these pandemics that alert us to these things. And God uses these tactics. I realise there's much more to it than that, but that's part of it. But let's come now to verse 16. And I've found that the best way really to understand this verse is to approach it through negative statements. Because it's a verse that's so Capable of being misunderstood. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The first thing this verse is not about, it's not about man's love for God. And of course, that's totally different from so much of the religious world today, whatever the religious. Uh, background. It always seems to be someone is celebrating how this person loved God. Even if the, the per, even if the person reporting on this doesn't believe in God, they somehow think it's so wonderful this this person or this group's love for God. And in fact, in spite of all that secular humanism and scientism. Strives to do, we still live in a religious world, a world that's dominated by religious thinking. And within that religious thinking, it is so often what man thinks he is doing for God that is promoted. And this would be true in the rabbinic world of Nicodemus. And yet, Jesus is speaking about God's love for man. God's love for man. God's initiative. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we see that the background, therefore, is that unless God does something in his love, we shall perish. It's about God's love for man. And that reminds us, uh, in our world in which there's so much concentration on celebrities and superstars and uh, groups of powerful figures, whether it's in the world of sport or some other world, finance or whatever it is, there's nothing that anybody can do to stop us perishing in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. Nothing that anyone can do to stop this final perishing under God's judgment and nothing that all these the pleasures and the possessions and the gifts and the things that this world can bring to anybody that can do to help us escape perishing God must step in God must do something it's about God's love for man and secondly therefore It is not a statement that teaches that everyone will go to heaven. You know, people, they don't quote this verse so much now as they used to, but the focus was always on that word love. Of course, it's a wonderful word. But actually, it's a, a verse full of judgment. It's a verse full of the thought of threat in order that they may not perish. But have everlasting life. This is a verse, this is a statement of of Christ about avoiding hell, about avoiding being cast into hell after death, the judgment. It's not teaching that everyone will go to heaven, you just cannot read that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. So what about those who do not believe in him? Well, it's clear what Jesus is saying. They will perish. They won't escape hell by being sincere. They won't escape hell uh, by living a good life. They won't escape hell because they follow some particular historic religion or historic belief. They won't escape hell because they are very sincere and think that God should make room for their ideas. Jesus says what the escape route is, whosoever believeth in him. In other words, the the way to perish eternally is to just stay exactly as you are without anything else. That's what Christ is saying, or that's an implication from what he's saying. And the way not to perish is to believe in Christ. And clearly that must be more than just some sort of idea that Jesus did live and that you respect him and that you have a good feeling towards him. Because all of that was true of Nicodemus before this conversation. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. We know you've done these miracles. He was a supernaturalist. We know that God is with you. He had all of that. So believing in him must go beyond that. It must go to what John's gospel is about. That is to to know him. To know him personally. That the believing is with the head and the heart, the mind and the soul. So the the way to perish, what Jesus is saying is just Stay as you are. Stay as you're born. Don't go into this area of believing in him. That's the way to perish. Thirdly, this verse is not teaching us about God's love for the church. A lot of Christians in the past have wished it was teaching about that. Nicodemus probably wished Jesus was teaching about God's love for the church or for the Jews. But it's about God's love for the world. The world. And we can, cannot mistake the meaning of Christ here for the world because he goes on in verses 18 through to 21 to describe the world exactly as, as it is. He, he describes it as a place where men love darkness because their deeds are evil. He's, Nicodemus, yes, you're right, there is this world. This world of tax collectors and harlots. This world of Gentile dogs, as you would call it. There is this world that's sunk in wickedness. And they love darkness and their deeds are evil. And they don't come to the light. They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to be exposed in their sin. What they do at night, what they do in secret What they do in their relationships, what they do to other human beings, they don't want that exposed. They they operate furtively, secretly, in the darkness. That's who God loves. That's what God loves. Not because it's like that, but in spite of the fact that it's like that. For God so loved the world. God so loved the despisers. And the crucifiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the persecutors of his people. And those whose lifestyle is an abomination in his sight. As to give his only begotten son for them. Now God does love the church. And it would be a a, a total error to say anything else. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. God so loved the worlds. And this leads us to the fourth state, thing I want to say. This is not a statement about divine election. Now, you perhaps are aware there are two great truths in Scripture which can be very confusing and difficult to put together. And they are both of them truths. The so one is the truth. Of God's definite purpose in foreordination to save his people. In Ephesians chapter 1, let me just read these verses to you. We cannot and must not um, lose sight of this aspect of God's purposes. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, blessed be God. Uh, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now that's talking about divine election. It's the Bible that teaches election. It's not Calvinists that teach it, it's the Bible that teaches it. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's not just uh, because God foresees what's going to happen, therefore he can talk about it. It's saying he foreordains it, he predestinates it, he, he works out the destiny. And there's no way around that glorious truth. So that's one side. But there's another side. Let me give you a few examples of the other side. Mark's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 15. And he said to his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, God is not somebody who puts on a scam, He means what He says. And so when he says to the apostles and he says to the church, preach the gospel to every creature, he's not saying make a scam offer, a scammy offer that you don't really intend. It's a genuine offer to every creature, he says. Or listen to his words to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Now either God is putting on a show there, or he means what he says, and of course he means what he says. He has no pleasure in. In the death of the wicked. He wants the wicked to turn and live. He wants the world to turn and live. Or 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Tremendous statement concerning divine love. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you have these two great truths God's foreordaining and predestinating purpose to save his elect and God's genuine, sincere love for the lost and his call to each one to come to him. What we have to understand is that these two truths are both true and that they are, to use a technical word, an antinomy. An antinomy is where there are two truths that appear to contradict each other, but they both are true and have to be accepted. And I tell you, the Christian faith is full of them. Great is the mystery of our religion. God was manifest in the flesh. The two natures of Christ, and yet the one person. The Trinity. The three persons, and yet the one God, the one Godhead. The scriptures, the word of God and yet the word of man. Our wonderful, glorious uh, way of worship is full of paradox and antimony. It is a mystery. And we cannot understand it and we have to bow before it and we have to accept it. Yes God does have a special love for his elect but he also loves all men and he loved that rich young ruler who went away from him and he wept over Jerusalem and they were not tears of frustration nor were they tears just simply because the fabric of the city was going to be destroyed that's how some people have interpreted that they were tears over what was going to happen to those people however having said all that John chapter 3, verse 16, is not about divine election. You see, this verse has sometimes been a battleground between Calvinists and Arminians. But Jesus is working in a different context. The context is the wickedness of the world. Not whether it's the elect or the non-elect, but the world in its wickedness. God so loves this vile, corrupt, abominable world as to give his son for it. So that's the fourth thing I want to say. It's not about man's love for God. It's not teaching that everyone will go to heaven. It's not about God's love for the church. It's not about divine election, nor is Jesus describing conflict within the Trinity. I touched on this in a study of John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I pointed out to you that the verse makes clear that the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, is not the cause of God's love, but the result of God's love, for God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son. It isn't the cross wringing forgiveness out of the hand of a reluctant father, God's love to sinners is not a response to the cross. God's love to sinners is the cause of the cross. It's the cause of the death of Christ. It's the reason Jesus came into this world to save sinners. It's the reason that he was given up to the death of the cross. It's the overflowing of that love within the Trinity in what's called the covenant of redemption. And a salvation vast enough to save a thousand worlds if God purposed it. So it's not describing conflict within the Trinity. Next, I've only got two more. It's not describing indecision within the Trinity. Now, you can't really read that from the verse, but people have tried to read this into statements like this and into what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life well what they say is this uh, and over the course of um, AD time since the birth of Christ there have been large segments of Christendom that have believed this heresy that God gave us the human Jesus, but actually he kept back for himself the divine Christ. That's one of the great heresies. It's called Arianism. And it can go something like this. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe a species of this, for example. Uh, And whole tracts of medieval, pre-medieval Europe believe this, that... It was at the baptism of Jesus, some sort of divine thing came on him. But at the cross, that divine thing went back. So it's as though God had some sort of limited liability about this. Well, you can have my son, you can have Jesus, whoever he is, but you're not getting all of him because you only get him at his baptism and he's not going to stay there on the cross. He's going back. uh, He's going back before you get to the actual point of atonement on the cross. Now that's what, however you describe that heresy, it has to be indecision within the Trinity. Am I going to give my son or am I not going to give my son? Am I going to allow his divinity, if you you say that he was divine, somehow to blunt the edges of his suffering or, or somehow to enable him to escape bits of his suffering? No, it tells us that God gave his only begotten son. It was an act of complete giving. He gave the whole person. He gave the whole mysterious person, the two natures, the one person. So that in the book of Acts in chapter 20, as the Apostle Paul preaches to the elders of Ephesus, he can describe The church of Jesus Christ as having been purchased with his blood. Or the church of God, I should say, with having been purchased with his own blood. The blood of God. The blood of God. Because God kept nothing back. He gave his only begotten son. Final point. This is not merely a description of. Of a sentiment of God. Now it is true to say it is about the love of God. It's true to say that God commends His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's true. But this is not some kind of sentimental statement which is being used to move us to repent us, to repentance, being used to entice us, if you like, to repentance. No doubt it does point us in that direction but it's actually describing not a sentiment but a transaction. He gave his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's a purposeful love. It's a purposeful giving. The purpose of the giving is to rescue the perishing. It's about a transaction it's about giving someone up who is going to go and suffer in their place. Giving that person up fully and unreservedly, that person being his own son, in order that reconciliation can take place. So we see here the love of God. The love of God does something, it accomplishes something. It accomplishes what is necessary for guilty Sinners like us to find everlasting life. And we're told that it's for whosoever believeth in him. We're told, therefore, that there is no reason why any one of us, why anyone in the world, for that matter, may not believe on the Son of God and have life. And you see here how precious your soul is to God, that he has gone to such great lengths in order that you might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given up his most precious gift, that most precious thing, his only begotten son, that you might uh, be spared, perishing, eternally perishing. He's given up Jesus to the painful and shameful death of the cross. This is perhaps a slightly trivial illustration, but I'm sure you get what I'm saying. They're talking about the need for vaccine passports in order possibly to get into certain places. Well, here is a passport to get you into heaven. It's one which God will honour. It's a key that will unlock, unlock the door for giving up of his son on the cross. The moment you believe in him, the moment you believe on him personally and receive that gift for yourself, that becomes your passport into heaven.